this is Oliver. This is Eleanor. We're from the present group. We sat down with Joe Hardesty on November 17, 2011 to talk about the latest piece for the present group, audiovisual. It's issue 19 of the present group, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi, Joe. Hi. <laughs> for people who haven't seen or heard your work, can you explain your work for the present group a little bit first? Okay. Well, the the project for the present group was a audio recording pressed to to vinyl, and the the recording the the text that I that I recorded I recited text that I had written, and I had written it for drawings that I made previously, and I'm still making it as a kind of ongoing body of work. Um, and these drawings were text based, um, fairly simple um, presentation of the text on paper. Um, and the idea for the present group was to take this text, and some of it was changed. Some of the text that hadn't been made into drawings were also used for the present group. But to take this text and to explore what it would be like if I if I read it and it, it kind of took on this new life as an audio recording. How did you go about choosing the title, audiovisual? Uh, <laughs> You know, as, as our, I'm, I'm never very good at titles. Usually the titles for the drawings end up coming from, you know, some piece of text in the drawing themselves. And, of course, these drawings were so much about um, the drawings that inspired the, the, the project were so much about kind of creating an image in the, the audience or the viewer's mind. So this sort of this idea of the mind's eye really, yeah, just working with that idea of the mind's eye and working with the idea of, um, you know, there is no image in front of you, but the viewer sort of creates the image. And wondering, you know, I, this is all sort of an experiment in some ways, wondering what would happen if if that, if you're hearing it, do you still, does the same thing still happen? You know, does this image still get created in the same way? So thinking about image, and of course, it's an audio piece, so sort of audio visual, and just sort of that kind of dorky tongue in cheek, you know, AV thing, I actually worked in AV for a while, so I, I don't know. It seemed natural. Well, one, one thing we were actually talking about with the difference between the reading and the, and your text drawings was how it seems like the, the font that you choose and the colors you choose are, are an important part of the, the text drawings. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, with that gone, it, it seems more, it's more conceptual. It's right. Like, yeah, and it was hard, like, when I was thinking about reading them or, or reciting them, like, do I like do I play a character like who is this narrator that's reading these things should each one be narrated differently I even I mean I think all along I thought that I was going to be the one that read them but you know of course at different points I even thought maybe other people should be reading these or maybe these should be in different voices to sort of you know goes back to that like cuz each one sort of does have a different feeling i mean and the the visual look of them helps sort of set some kind of tone you know, some kind of, I don't know, visceral sort of reaction right. um, with with what you see and, and what you read. How do you go about choosing the, the, the font? Oh, the, the font. You know, the, it was, in the beginning, it was really, I was kind of actually stubbornly tried not to put too much thought into it. It's like I would write these things really quickly when I first started making them. They would get written in less than a half hour in my studio, like literally with a blank piece of paper on the wall waiting for the drawing. And then I would type them into the computer because I'm terrible at spelling and grammar. 
um, particularly spelling. And so I, and I, I still had spelling mistakes in a few of the drawings actually. Um, <laughs> but as I've gone along, I, they, the whole process has slowed way down and I've done a lot more, I do a lot more editing with what I want to say. So because of that editing process now, my editor, quote unquote, which is my wife, usually catches the spelling mistakes that the computer doesn't. But um, so when I first started um, with the the text pieces, I, I, I would just kind of, it was this fast process. I put them into the computer for the spell checking and all that. And then I would just kind of quickly grab a font that felt right or, you know, and I had three or four, I, you know, I was like Times New Roman, a few other ones. And when I first did them, I was kind of copying, I wasn't like projecting it or tracing the font. I was really just doing this sort of wonky kind of bad approximation that turned into, it turned into my own sort of font or take on this sort of serif font. Um, but then as, as I kept going, I started to realize that there, you know, people wanted to talk about font and I became more interested in it, but I still kind of narrowed it down to a few things that I liked. And, and honestly, there is no like real rhyme or reason to, to why I chose the fonts I chose other than that they just, they felt right. And I try to limit my choices because otherwise you can kind of get bogged down. At least I can get bogged down and sort of trying to figure out that decision. And a lot of the drawings get made in more than one font. So like I was experimenting for a while, a large number of drawings I probably made two or three versions at least, and I would try different fonts. And sometimes they all worked in different fonts and sometimes like a drawing, I'd make it and it just didn't feel right at all. And then I'd make it in a different font that felt right. Do you ever have a phrase that you like and then you do a drawing of it and the phrase doesn't work anymore? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there are also what happens more often because I mean, I come at this, I think as a, like firmly as a sort of visual artist, but obviously I'm writing these things in, you know, 99% of the cases, it's my text. There's been a few pieces that I made where I've stolen from a friend who had some text um, that I kind of changed, but it wasn't something that had been published and it was just like two drawings. So it's generally my text. And what happens more often is like I, I have an image in my mind that I try to make into a drawing and I think it's going to work and I work it and I draw it and it just, it doesn't work. But I think it's more about the writing than the drawing, if that makes sense. I don't know. Um, and there've been a few, like, especially for a while I was doing ones that were kind of one or two words that I was thinking of as like these banana peels for the viewer to slip on. So if you <laughs> saw a show of four or five drawings, there might be one that had, you know, it was one word or two words. The first one I did like that is on the, well, there are several of them on the, the recording for the present group, but the one Vikings, which was one of the ones that for when I did the recording, I actually kind of changed the way I recorded it and yelled the word Vikings. But I just always thought it was really funny. Like this idea in the context of all these other drawings, some of which are kind of serious or whatever, have this like certain tone that just all of a sudden I, I thought of it as this like raving, raging band of like berserker or Vikings or something coming on the scene. Um, and that was like the best way to describe it. But there have been some other one-word ones, like I did one, Tumbleweeds, that I never got it to look right. Like, I still mm -hmm. like the sound of Tumbleweeds and the idea of Tumbleweeds, mm -hmm. but I never got the drawing of Tumbleweeds to really work. Hmm. Do you, are you still thinking, like, playing around with the idea of having either other people recite them or using different voices and stuff? Yeah, I mean, and now since starting this project, of course, I've started thinking about performance which is never something 
it's not something I've done a lot of as an artist, although as a really young person, I did do some perform, like I did theater or something in, in high school, but that was a long time ago. But I have thought about that and I've kind of wondered if I perform them, how would that go? Or if I should sort of accentuate the sort of narrator, like maybe they would all be the same, but there would be this narrator that wasn't me that recited them. Um, but you know, I, I think I probably have to, I haven't really experimented. I've done it with my own voice, but I haven't actually asked anyone to read them and listen to how that would feel. So yeah, I've thought about it, but I haven't done much with it. So how do you think it would, it would change them to do it? Like how, how do you think the experience would be different listening to it live versus listening to the recorded version? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's something about live performance that there is a kind of connection between human beings and an audience and the performer that can be really cool. I mean, it can be a disaster too, but it can be kind of magical, right? There can be something that happens in that space. You're, you're physically in the same space. You're sort of breathing the same air, all that stuff. I think that kind of makes it, I mean, they're already really intimate, I think, drawings or they're intimate things that I'm reciting in a way. And so maybe it would amp up a little bit of that intimacy somehow. Um, no, that's yeah. true. They do. This, these recordings do feel very intimate. There's some, maybe it's how you recorded it. Or yeah. It might be just the warmth of vinyl, like the sound. But until you mentioned it, I hadn't put that word on it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that can, you know, some some of the best sort of performance, whether it's music or or theater or or even dance, has at least to me the stuff that I'm sort of gravitates towards the most or resonates the most with me. Usually has some kind of that has that intimacy like that. I mean, maybe with music, there's like other things that play that I'm interested. I mean, like really loud, jarring music can be interesting too, but. Um, but I think that intimacy is really interesting as a kind of performative aspect. The thing I'm attracted to. I mean, I've also been really interested recently in film and video, and I've been experimenting with making films in my own studio. And I think that too, as this kind of time-based thing, you experience it in time, maybe in a different way than you experience a drawing in time or a painting in time. And the film, the experiments that I'm doing now with film are, are the same kind of thing. And I think it kind of creates... The thing that's that I'm I'm liking about her that's resonating again is that intimacy that, that kind of I can kind of get up on these drawings and I can I'm filming them with 16 millimeter camera and they kind of interact with them in a way that I don't think a viewer would normally interact with them and kind of create a different relationship between the drawing and and you know the viewer as mediated through film. I was actually wondering about timing. You know, sometimes I just want to I want to pause the record because I, I just want to revel in that one thought for a minute. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's interesting being a record because, it, you know, you can't really do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like if it were a CD or a digital thing, it can be a sort of discrete piece. But as a record, you you can't. You have to lift the needle, right? Right. And so I wonder if, you know, if you, when you're thinking about doing it live, how that would change or play a different you know role the timing right i mean i'm sure that you could really work with the sort of idea of tension live in a different way than you do on the recording but yeah live i think silence would create a kind of interesting tension that would be nice because i mean i think some of the drawings have elements of humor some of them have elements of kind of longing or trauma and playing with some of those things and breaking it up or or 
pushing those elements with with time with space giving them the the kind of room to breathe so to speak might be really nice right it sounds like you're so you were thinking about it that way anyway with the vikings one yeah you imagine someone coming upon that one after having seen this other progression right yeah yeah definitely like that they that they I mean, I've, I've always been interested in that since I started doing this, is figuring out how these things interact with each other. And, like, is there a kind of larger narrative that someone starts to build? I mean, does that just happen? Or do, you know, or some people want to build a narrative, some people don't. And I think, or just regardless of narrative, that feeling, that kind of, uh, you know, one after another, or like, how do, they, how do they relate to each other is also interesting. And it, I think it does change when you record them as well. What attracted you about making a record well i mean i think i've always fetishized records just uh you know as a fan of of music and listening to music so there's that part that's pretty hard to divorce myself from but yeah i mean i think part of it is just that sort of fetishizing that object and fetishizing this this thing um that meant so much to me i you know i grew up in in minnesota in northern minnesota where there wasn't a lot of you know um I guess, contemporary culture happening, um, at least in the way that it happens in, in bigger cities um, that attract more people. But there was a record store, and that was what we did. We, we consumed records voraciously, and it was sort of pre-internet. So, you know, it's all, the, all our information kind of came through the record stores and through, through magazines. I mean, I also just was interested, I mean, to sort of thinking about art and sound recording. I mean, I was interested in artists that had used sound and I was interested in sort of the idea that that you could make something that could be distributed freely um, and that people could sort of become familiar with your work in a kind of, you know, mass media kind of way. Not that I have any delusions that this present group record is probably going to get played a lot on the radio, but the idea that, you know, it's, it's, um, it can be distributed uh, in that way, I think really appealed to me as well. When I lived in Chicago, there was a radio station there that did shows actually where they, they would play like artists works on the radio. And I learned about a lot of artists that way. Sometimes you'll introduce each drawing with the words in this drawing, or you describe the aesthetic qualities of the drawing itself or the watercolor. Yeah. Is it important for you to have people picture the scenes that you're describing as actual drawings? Oh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think very often I don't picture them. I know I've never thought about that. No one's ever asked me that question. I mean, I don't even think I think of them, you know, when I picture the scenes necessarily as drawings. Yeah, I mean, I think that I was firmly interested in drawing, like I fetishized drawing and like the materials of drawing and the sort of, I mean, going back to that idea of intimacy and this kind of the artist's hand, people always talk about artists they like, and I always find myself gravitating towards like painters, like I don't like the paintings, but I like the drawings, right? And everyone else is like amped up about um, their paintings. And I think that part of it is that I was really attracted to the kind of materiality of drawing and and that sort of intimacy and that maybe that it was something that wasn't necessarily meant for everyone to see in the same way that I'd like a painting might be or something. So anyway, I was like, and I, and I liked working with paper. I liked the feeling of paper. So when I started making these things, I was really firmly sort of, I'm, I make drawings. I, and that's sort of where that language comes from is that these are drawings. Um, 
but it's not so much that I picture the scenes or picture the the images as drawings. Uh, I guess I th- I picture them as either you know real sort of scenes that I've either experienced or that are sort of fantasies or whatever. If I do have an image in my head, it's probably closer to either painting or photography. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, right. For this project, you sort of revisited all your past drawings. Right. Um, Did you discover new themes? in your work hmm like was it what was it like to go back through everything or are you sort of constantly in contact with all these past yeah no i mean i i I guess i did like i was thinking about this when i was trying to sequence it because it was interesting um because there's a few things on the present group recording where there are drawings that are changed slightly um one or two words might have changed um, or a sentence or two was either removed or added. And I decided to record more than, you know, like if the words or something changed about them, I recorded more than one version of some of them. Um, so I had to think about that when I was sequencing, but I also just sort of had to think about the feeling and the feelings and the sort of content. And I did notice a couple of things. I mean, of course there's a lot of horse drawings um, <laughs> And I knew there was a lot of horse drawings because I was joking. Um, I had a show of, like two years ago in Chicago. We were going to call it Horse Stories because <laughs> I really like that Dirty Three record called Horse Stories. Anyway, but uh, which I guess kind of relates to this because it's a recording, right? But so I knew there was a lot of horse horse recordings, but I actually had forgotten how many, and that became sort of I became really aware of that. And then also smokers um, and cigarettes. Yeah, a lot of cigarettes. Yeah, which I think is like, I I mean, a lot of that stuff comes from my sort of, uh, some of it's like nostalgia or just like thinking about adolescence or something. I mean, I don't, I used to smoke cigarettes. I haven't smoked cigarettes in several years though. Um, But I still think about cigarettes and smokers. Like I, one of the first drawings I made in LA was like about smokers, um, about it's on the thing. It's, and I don't remember what the title is, but um, it's like three boys sharing a cigarette at sunset. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know why those people jump out at me or why those, why that theme sort of is there. And then I think the other thing that I was really interested in for a while, that's sort of probably, I mean, there's more than just those themes, but also like kind of pastoral scenes and sort of, um, agriculture was something else that I was thinking about. Although maybe there's not as much of that as there is of smokers and horses. And then there's something also about the limits of the visual image. You know, you have the one where there's a man thinking to himself about what his childhood self would think about. Right. And and then you say, there's no text in the painting. Right. And then there's, you know, there's the other one where it's like, there's an improvised explosive device in this painting, but it's hidden from view. Right, right. It would be impossible to convey that without text. Right, right, right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like I like the idea of sort of reading between the lines or that there is that you can do things with text. You can create images for people with text that maybe you can't necessarily create if you're painting representationally or illusionistically. Switching gears a little. (laughs) Tell us about your gray bows. 
Oh, the Graybos, they're sort of this, I guess, ongoing project really that I, I've come to sort of think of them as like a null set, um, as this thing I can kind of come back to when I don't know what to do or when I don't have something to do. There's, you know, I, I have a sort of simple set of rules, right? They're these colorless rainbows. They always have seven stripes. And I always do them sort of monochromatically, right, in black or gray. Always the same size, 9 by 12. And I've made hundreds of them. And, they, you know, they, they serve different purposes at different times. Uh, a lot of times they're just about needing to sort of exercise that part of me as an artist that wants to kind of make a mess and, and sort of play. Like sometimes with the text drawing, especially, you know, you in the studio activity can occasionally just be like executing, you know, you sort of have this idea, you know where you're going with it, you figure it out and then you got to make it. And it's like, you're listening to like, you know, podcasts of Terry Gross or something while you fill in these parts of the drawing. <laughs> and the gray bows are sort of way more immediate and, and fast and fun. And there's a lot of, lot more room for failure, even I think to some extent with them, like, you know, I'm not even concerned about whether or not they're good like on an individual basis. So it's really freeing as a kind of studio activity because they're, they're, they're so limited in terms of what I would do. Like I, I, when I was making a lot of them for a while, I would do this thing. Like I'd put out like seven or eight on the, on the floor on a table and I try to make like seven or eight exactly the same. And then I try to make like seven or eight, but pretty simultaneously. Right. So I'm like doing one stripe on one and then I'm doing the same stripe on another. And then I, I do seven or eight and I try to make, like none of them resemble the other in any way possible. So it became this kind of visual game that I would play. Do you, do you ever show, do you, is the quantity sort of part of it? Like, are they always shown in a large group? Definitely. Yeah, they are. I think the smallest number that's ever been shown at once was like seven or eight. But the other times that I've shown them, they've been in large quantities, like dozens um, I've shown them on the wall and on tables. I really like them on tables. Um, they're, they're really sort of nice that way. Yeah, and the quantity is really important, I think. So you recently or somewhat recently moved to L.A.? Yeah. How do you like it? <laughs> uh, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, it's sunny, which I really like. Um, I grew up in the Midwest with winter, and I didn't mind winter, and I liked winter. Um, until I moved to LA and I don't care about winter anymore. Um, I like being here in the sunshine, but yeah, I, I mean, LA is really interesting. It's, it's definitely a more sort of isolating city than, I mean, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I lived in Chicago for 13 years and then I was lucky enough to go live in Berlin for a year before we moved to LA. I think LA more than other places other than Chicago and Berlin and even, you know, I guess Minnesota, like it feels like it can be more isolating. I think part of that's just a function of geography and the automobile. You don't see, you don't run into people in the same way. So that's taken a little bit of time to adjust, but it's also like a totally weird city. And there's all this like hidden kind of secret parts of LA that kind of have continued at least so far in the, in the few, in the time that I've been here to kind of keep revealing themselves, which is really great. And of course there are a lot of terrific artists here. And lots of places to see art, which is really great. And I mean, the major reason why I moved here was so that I would be in a place where there was lots of art being made and lots of art being shown. And particularly a lot of art being made. There are a lot of artists here, which is great. So how do you make a living as an artist? Uh, I mean, right now, I, I've done a lot of sort of 
odd job things and kind of freelance artist assistant work for a few artists here. Um, for a while, I had like a job, like an admin type job, right? But lately, um, I've been lucky enough to get a few teaching gigs. So I've been kind of teaching, which is barely, it's not really enough to make a living, but I'm married to someone who's good enough to buy the groceries. Uh, so that's a big part of it too. But yeah, I, may, I teach. Uh, I'm teaching at a, a couple of different schools, a community college um, and a regular college in like introduction type classes, which has been cool and interesting. Do you find that teaching informs your own work? You know, I mean, I, I don't know if I've been doing it long enough to know how much it informs it, but definitely I've been thinking, I've been going back to the basics in a way that I hadn't in a long time. You know, like I'm teaching like introduction to two-dimensional design, which is this like prerequisite for all other art classes, right? And there are things that I learned when I was 18, when I took that class that I probably haven't thought about in like, at least in concrete language in, in a long, long time. So sort of having to learn to articulate that for students, particularly people who are like, have no familiarity with visual art or, or vocabulary relating to visual art um, has been interesting. And, and it's made me sort of study this stuff more closely recently. And I've been thinking about it in terms of my own work and in terms of how I make drawings you know like you learn about the principles of design right and balance and harmony and that's just stuff you don't think about as much as you kind of develop your artistic chops and you move through life as an artist but having to talk about it I've kind of been really examining my own work under that lens and I don't know if it's having an effect or if it's gonna gonna have an effect but it's definitely been interesting to think about seems like you took off a good amount of time between your BFA and getting going back to get your MFA. What did you uh -huh. what did you do during that time and what helped you make the decision to go back? I did a bunch of different stuff. A variety of like interesting sort of odd jobs, right? But eventually I ended up working at the Art Institute of Chicago, like taking care of classrooms. And so I was there and I was working with students a lot and I was just sort of I had these students that actually worked for me. I had like student employees and, and I just like realized that, I guess I realized that I was like, I wasn't done with school or I wasn't done with some kind of conversation that I had more to kind of learn. And I also liked that kind of conversation that I was having with them. I think at the time when I was going into grad school, I was thinking about it also in terms of like teaching. Although by the time I was in grad school, like for a year, I kind of thought the last thing I wanted to do was teach and that I really wanted to, you know, I wanted to make work and I wanted to like really think about work in a critical way and all that stuff. Um, okay. So we always end our interviews with this question. Uh, what is the value of art? You know, I think uh, I, I'm just trying to decide if I should say something like something smartassy or something uh, <laughs> serious. Um, I guess I feel serious about it, right? Um, I mean, I think art moves people. I think that that art makes people feel like you know whether they're looking at it or making it. The, when they shout out into the void, something comes back. That there's other human beings that have had the same experience. Um, and that's really valuable to just, you know, feel like other people can relate to what you, your experience. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah. Oh, thank you.